Circular economy is about using the materials that we have as efficiently as possible. So the planet simply can't sustain the, the growth and development that we're going through at the moment. Um, so how do we make sure we can live within our planet's means? That was Rachel Houlihan, an architect and sustainability coordinator from Orms, who was our special guest this week to help us capture conscious design. Design and architecture enthusiasts, wherever you are and however you are listening, welcome to DesignPod with me, Hamish Kilburn, and my co-host, interior designer, Harriet Ford. This series of Design Pod is sponsored by Minotti London, the UK home of the Italian furniture brand that puts stylish luxury into unmatched comfort. Welcome, so, Harriet. Good to, to our, see you. Oh, so good to see you. This is our first episode of 2022. It is. New yeah, year, new yeah, us. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Covid-free currently. Covid-free. I think everyone's had it now, haven't they? <laughs> yes. Been there, done that. Are you getting used to being on record? I am. I am. I am, I think. Yeah. Getting there. So this topic, oh my God, it's such a mountain of a topic, sustainability. It's a huge topic, but do we have a fantastic guest to We have take an amazing guest. That? But yes. before, it's just how... I mean, sustainability has been a buzzword for so long. Mm. Um, as an interior designer yourself, mm. when did it really become an issue for clients to, to think about sustainable alternatives or, or when they started listening to sustainable mm. alternatives? And is it, I mean, c can you be fully sustainable as an interior designer, especially in the luxury market? I, I, can you be fully sustainable in, in any market, actually? I mean, I think, um, you know, actually you can, you can do your best and you can always constantly trying to push the boundaries and as this um I, I hate I, I don't want to use the word industry but as this sort of issue evolves and uh, we understand more and more about how we can do things better then you can just take it further and further but at the moment you meet resistance from clients you meet resistance from suppliers you meet resistance from designers I think it's always just about pushing it a little bit further each time and seeing what, what the options are and presenting them and seeing what the best you can do is mm. and are, are there certain materials that um are not sustainable but are, are so popular among clients that it's very difficult to get them to, to see the alternative? I think it's down to perception really. Often people worry about the performance of fabrics or materials. They worry about the look, the luxury feel. If something's been produced is a, is a, um, a man-made product and feels fantastic, will I get the same feel sense from something that's from the natural world? Um, so it's, down to, it's a lot down to perception and also price. Mm. Sometimes because these are emerging technologies that we're using or maybe the man-made version is cheaper than the natural version, you're looking at budget constraints as well so um, you know it's, there's a whole whole um, mix of things which come into this question mark yeah. mm. and with um, so, so this this conversation that we have with uh, Rachel Houlihan who's an architect from from Orms I mean she's just fascinating she is isn't brilliant. she yeah she's great but we, we talk about reuse mm. as opposed to recycle mm. that to me seems like a really interesting and significant mm. shift in, in the that, way we address it does but it requires it requires a lot of work from the product uh, product development um, perspective right from the very beginning so when you're actually designing a product where whether it be a toilet or a sink or a tap or a radiator or something you've actually got to think about how that that item is designed you know specifically to be reused mm. rather than just oh well maybe if it's sort of, you know, I've got 20 of these things, I'm going to try my best with them, but I don't know if they're going to work. These things actually have to be produced in order to specifically do that. Mm. And that takes a massive mind shift. Yeah, totally. So, mm. so be honest with me, mm. has it helped or hindered the overall interior design process, thinking about sustainability in such a raw state? I don't, 
I, I don't, I think it's probably made it more difficult, but does, is that a bad thing? Mm. Not a bad thing, no, because we might not have a world to interior design in if we don't do something about it. Mm, I like that. <laughs> so with that, I think we should go to our interview with, yes. with Rachel Houlihan, architect yeah, at all. She's great. Well, welcome, Rachel, to Design Pod. It's so great to have you. You're an architect at Orms and sustainability coordinator. Yes. So tell us a bit more about your journey in architecture and how why sustainability has become such a, a key issue for you to focus on. My pleasure. Uh, well, firstly, thank you for having me on. Uh, it's lovely to, to be here with you both. Um, so my journey is a bit of an interesting one. Um, I studied architecture. I wanted to be an architect. I studied architecture in Dublin. And I came to London for my year out and worked at Weston Williamson and Partners, um, where I was working on the Crossrail Paddington station uh, for the year. And it was an absolutely incredible experience just working on a, an infrastructural project of that scale, um, just the sheer number of drawings that we were working on. I had never in a million years imagined that this would be what working would be like, but I really, really loved it. Um, but I returned to Ireland to do my master's. And actually at the time, my university, uh, UCD, were trialing a master's program for sustainability. And they opened up some of the modules to the architecture students. Um, and I took one of them. And I'd always loved the sustainability modules that we did during our undergrad. I always thought that sustainability just seemed so practical. I remember when somebody explained to me about passive design, you know, if you orientate the building correctly with the sun, it'll heat in the winter. And if you shade it in the summer, it won't overheat. And I remember thinking, this is genius. Why are we all doing this? Um, but I really began to get into it then in my master's and my thesis was looking at two passions of mine, food and architecture, um, and thinking about how Dublin City would feed itself. And that mm. was sort of my, my thesis. So coming out of that, um, I initially worked in Ireland for a year in a practice called ABK Architects. And by sheer chance, they happened to be working on a project called Ballymun Boiler House. Uh, so Ballymun is an area in Dublin. Um, it was built in the 60s as largely social housing to clear out the tenements in Dublin City and had a lot of the issues, the social issues that many of these sorts of schemes had. And it was undergoing a, a massive regeneration scheme. And at the heart of the project, there, there were a number of very high rise um, flat blocks, which would be incredibly unusual in Ireland. And they had a centralised boiler house. So there were these four massive uh, boilers. I think they were about 10 tons each. And wow. this really, really tall chimney. And it was in the centre of these units. Mm. And the units had all been taken down. The, the boiler house was now defunct, but actually the, the people in the community really resonated with it. They mm. really loved it. It was part of their skyline and they didn't really want to see it go. So a local group came together uh, with Dublin City Council and the building has become the centre for circular economy in Ireland. And the idea was that this building would teach about sustainable architecture through the building itself. So you can see into the walls. We used a different type of wall on every type of wall. So we use these really innovative construction methods like, uh, well, hempcrete um, and reusing existing bricks, reusing existing metal louvers, crimping them down to make uh, sheets that we could clad the outside with. Um, and it, it just, it was an incredibly interesting project. It was the first time I'd seen any of these, you know, concepts being brought into life. Mm. Uh, so that really 
encouraged me probably to start looking for practices that were uh, working in sustainability. Uh, so I'd always wanted to work in New York. So after a year at ABK, I moved over to the US and I worked for a practice there called BKSK. And they had quite a, a keen interest in sustainability. Um, and they had a researcher in-house who would do these beautiful diagrams and drawings explaining the strategies that they were looking at. And um, things like blue roofs, you know, mm -hmm. keeping the water up on the roof, which now is really common, but at the time was quite unusual. And there I worked in luxury residential and uh, the project I was on for the majority of the year was a passive house project. Mm -hmm. So marrying passive house with luxury resi quite challenging very very challenging some <laughs> very interesting acrobatics needed to be done um i think the most memorable was trying to figure out how we could have a gas stove because it's absolutely you know incomprehensible that you could have a luxury residential unit and not have a gas mm -hmm. hob mm -hmm. um but you can't have that in a passive house traditionally because, of course, it's combustion. It needs to be exhausted. Mm -hmm. So if we exhausted the air from the space to keep it safe, mm. um, we'd start putting pressure on all of the doors and the windows because the buildings are so airtight. Mm. Right. So we had to have this special uh, ventilation system <laughs> installed, <laughs> designed and installed, so that when the extract fans came on, mm. replacement air was being pushed into the apartment at the same okay, rate yes. to prevent this like... To get the balance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> we had visions of, you know, windows popping out or yeah. something like or that. All clients had to be educated that there are different ways to cook food, maybe. Or maybe that too, but yeah. you know, the, you know, you pick your battles. You yeah. pick your battles. Um, so I worked there for a year, and then I came back to London. Mm -hmm. So I've been at Orms since then. Uh, so I originally joined Orms as uh, an architect. Well, part two, just about finishing my part three, and I was working on a number of our refurbishments and also some of our new build schemes. Um, and I had always had this again. This interest of sustainability was constantly coming through. So um, myself and my colleague Rosie. Um, were Work together to re-establish our sustainability group and originally we just you know we used to go to events and share ideas and maybe books we read um, and we would do reviews on projects so trying to encourage teams to think about things in a different way um, but we had bigger ambitions and I think Architects Declare was a bit of a, a kickstarter for that because we became signatories but we didn't just want to sign the bit of paper we wanted to actually make changes within the practice. Um, so we set out a five-year action plan and this was due to start in 2020. Mm -hmm. And of course, 2020 was a bit of a curveball. Mm. Um, and I know it was, it was really, really challenging in, in many ways, but actually for us in our sustainability work, it was brilliant because as projects uh, slowly went on pause at the end of each work stage, um, the practice had this decision to make, you know, would we furlough people or what would we do with, with this extra resource? And we were in the incredibly fortunate position that we were able to afford to keep people working but invest in research pieces. Mm -hmm. And so throughout the pandemic, we had a number of different research pieces, essentially what people in the practice were interested about. Mm. You were always encouraged to pick up, but we just didn't have the time with project pressures. So there was a research group looking at sustainability, at BIM, at digital technology, the future of the high street, the future of the workplace, um, historic buildings. So loads of really, really um, cool stuff going on. 
and Rosie, uh, unfortunately for me, but very fortunate for her, went off on maternity leave in mm. 2020. <laughs> so I was kind of by myself. But, um, mm-hmm. um, a number of my colleagues worked with me on the sustainability piece, which was wonderful. And we began to identify things that we could accelerate within our, exe- and our action plan. So um, we really wanted to start carrying out whole life carbon assessments in-house. We were really curious about them. Mm. We didn't really know what they were. We really wanted to learn about them. And we felt that the best way to do that would be by doing them. Mm. Um, and I became more and more interested in this world of circular economy and got involved with uh, the UK Green Building Council. Um, so they set up a, a group, a forum that was sort of self-organized, essentially to share ideas as you try to apply them on about circularity on a project. Mm. Um, and it's really gone from there. Mm. So at the start of 2021, I sort of officially transitioned over full-time uh, sustainability. Mm-hmm. So that's the role of sustainability coordinator, which, um, you know, at the time we joked, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we all scratch our heads, well, we don't know, but why don't we just keep going and yeah, figure it out as we go? You've been doing yeah. up to now anyway. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> at least you've got the focus. I mean, there yeah, is something, yeah, there's a focus, somebody with specific focus on that. So, yeah. yeah, I think also the, the focus when sustainability has been mentioned has always been on the interior designer. Mm-hmm. But actually, if we want to be fully sustainable and conscious, about the overall project it needs to come straight from foremost in the architecture have you seen there being more emphasis in in you know people understanding sustainability within architecture yes this year i mean i think the last 12 to 18 months have just the growth of the sustainability marketplace has just been exponential Mm. um people are becoming more and more comfortable talking about it more confident talking about it um what i always preface all of my conversations with um, when i talk to people is i understand that this is an overwhelming world Mm. there are times when i sit there going what do people mean when they say this Mm. so actually when you start a conversation about sustainability, define what you mean when you're talking about it. Um, define what, what topic or area you're talking about. Reference your different definitions. So people say, oh, net zero. Mm. What does net zero mean? Mm. Yeah. So we have net zero embodied carbon, which is the, the carbon emissions caused by the building fabric. Mm-hmm. We have net zero operational carbon, which is the carbon emissions caused by the building in use and operation mm-hmm. because it's burning electricity mm-hmm. or it needs pumps to pump the water, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and together they make whole life net zero carbon. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're, as a practice, when we talk about net zero carbon, we're talking about whole life mm-hmm. carbon. And um, so thinking about both of those things and how mm-hmm. do you balance them? Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the example that's often given in a refurbishment is, well, you have to put in embodied carbon to put in the insulation, mm-hmm. but then that brings down your operational carbon. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's a sweet spot. Yeah. Um, so you need that balance off, that trade-off yes. between the two in order yeah, to get absolutely. some sort of um, understandable figure. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. because you can over-insulate. Mm-hmm. And you also then need to factor in things like the internal area. So mm. clients, you know, I don't envy them. They have a really, really uh, difficult job of, you know, making these buildings work financially. Mm. Mm. So sometimes that extra square meter Absolutely. is l- not life or death, yeah. but, you know, is really, really important mm. for them. Well, it's so, amazing how by the time you insulate walls a little mm-hmm. bit all round, the oh, square yeah. foot, square meterage that's lost is quite, is quite significant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so trying to balance and you know we get very caught up in the environmental sustainability but remember that sustainability is three things environmental social Mm -hmm. and economic Mm -hmm. so at the end of the day this building has to work for our clients economically Mm -hmm. um so how do we balance all of these and, and juggle them to give 
the most sustainable building that we we possibly can. Yes, and I think also the um, the idea is is being as good as you can rather than perfection because you mm-hmm. just no, no one can do it perfectly, and there are no. always going to be trade offs. And when it, when when ideas get dashed because they're not quite as good as as a hundred percent, they shouldn't be written off necessarily because it's such an uh, in progress sort of um, uh, uh, focus at the moment, and it can only get better. Mm-hmm. But we're not starting from a perfect world at all. We're starting from a very imperfect world, and as long as we're moving towards something that's better, so these in between stages are things you're going to just have to live with to mm. some extent. Yeah, I think the hurdles in the way of that are, are this all terminology and, and what to use. So you know, you mentioned ESG, which is is, is great. You know, that takes it wider than sustainability, but people don't understand what that is. And they think Mm -hmm. wrongly that the S stands for sustainability when it doesn't. Mm -hmm. It's trying to incorporate a wider. is, Is there a solution to make the understanding more more simple so that greenwashing can't happen from from brands perspective, from hotels saying that they're net carbon zero? What does that actually mean? How do we get to that point? Well, so our sustainability manifesto is uh, sustainability needs to be factored in at every decision, on every level, on every scale. So successful sustainability is the sum of all parts. And that's how we approach it as a practice. Um, So constantly questioning ourselves, is this the right thing to do? Um, Am I making an informed choice? Is it a conscious choice? Those are the the biggest things that everybody can start to do. And sometimes, you know, we have to say, well, we know that this isn't technically the most sustainable route to go, but it is the best route for this project because of X, Y, or Z. Mm. Um, So when you do, you know, we use the whole life carbon assessment software in-house as a design tool. So when we're presenting different design options to the client, we can say, well, the carbon impact of this decision would be this, and option one, two, and three. Mm. Um, And then in a similar way that a cost consultant would say, well, this is the financial impact of each of these different design options. Mm. So it enables the client to be making much more informed decisions. They're going in consciously and saying, I have to, I can't pick the lowest carbon option because I can't afford it, but I can pick the second lowest carbon option. And to me, that's a win. Yeah. That's, that's one little thing. So you're, you're presenting the client Whereas a few years ago, you know, an architect would present the, the cost of materials and, and, you know, the client would be really focused on the cost, understandably. Yeah. Now you're also presenting what that cost is to the environment and, and you know, carbon and yeah. emissions. So In they our can minds, make that decision. That makes a lot of sense. We have a financial budget and mm-hmm. a carbon budget. Mm-hmm. And how we choose to spend that on a building is you know, at the client's discretion with the guidance of the design team. So sometimes, you know, thinking of the the luxury hotel marketplace, clients are understandably going to want to make a huge impression with their communal spaces and Mm -hmm. probably their ground floor space. You know, this is their their big selling point. Mm. It's probably where they're going to invest the majority of their money well, not the majority of money, but, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of yeah. money will it's go the in there. arrival is, so, is critical. Mm. Yeah. Yep. And therefore, it's probably going to be where they're going to want to invest all of their carbon mm. or a lot of their carbon. So when you're making these decisions, you might say, right, well, I'm going to uh, put down a posh concrete floor. And I know that that's not necessarily the most sustainable. You know, there are other floor finishes that have less of a carbon impact. But in terms of durability, well, it's going to stand up. It's mm. going to keep looking great for years and years. Um you need to have that conversation with them about how long they're planning to keep it mm. because lifespan is critical. So if you put down a really high carbon uh, product, you want to make sure that it's being used to its maximum. Mm. So 
you know, I'll put my hand up and say, I put metal uh, cladding panels in one of the receptions of my, uh, one of the last projects I worked on mm. as a designer. Mm. And in hindsight, that wasn't a great decision because they weren't in an area where it was very high traffic. So they weren't going to be getting a lot of battering or damage. Mm. A, a less durable material would have been acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, and really we had just done it for the aesthetic. Mm. Mm. Now, So you could have done a liquid metal finish instead maybe onto some, some, some well, actually, more sustainable. What we've done is we've taken it out and we've put in a fabric one. Okay, yeah. You know, so it, it, it works in that sense, you know, you need to try and think about where you're spending this carbon. Mm. And then if you've chosen to spend carbon in this area, so if a client wants a metal clad uh, reception, that's fine. We can make that happen. They understand the carbon cost of it. Um, they've made this conscious decision. This is their choice. That's great. We'll work really hard with them then on all of the other areas to try and bring down those numbers um, as much as possible mm. elsewhere to help balance that out. Mm. So it's it's that idea of investment mm. and people get really upset um you know and i see this a lot in the media as well uh, a practice will proudly you know talk about the sustainability of one of their projects and then they'll get absolutely battered mm. um because you know they didn't do one thing quite right yeah mm. and but it goes back to that thing of doing as best you can yeah and it's mm. also marketing as well there's there's such a strive for you know using sustainability within marketing spiels and, and yeah. you know, we've got the most sustainable best, best sustainable hotel i mean is it even possible to create a fully sustainable hotel in an urban environment that's going to stand the test of time probably not yeah. you and, have to come to some compromise and is there a scale that everyone's working to or is this just all self-imposed scales in terms of what you're trying to achieve is there a stand are there standards that have been set that are clear enough guidelines that you could actually say this hotel does and this hotel doesn't come above or below the the desired level of sustainability no no exactly so it's not yet so until there's something that's universally accepted it's everyone's interpretation of well what we have at the moment you know, the, the two huge topics everyone's talking about is net zero carbon mm. and circular economy. And quite rightfully, they're probably the biggest impacts when you, you think of sustainability, they're the biggest impact items. Um, and, the, you know, the rest of the world of sustainability, things like well-being and uh, thermal comfort and everything like that, um, they can, to a certain extent, take a little bit of a backseat for the moment. We really need to focus on not causing so much damage to the environment. Mm. So net zero carbon, is about reducing the amount of carbon emissions being caused by our buildings. And the reason we need to do that is because those carbon emissions are causing global warming, which is causing climate change. Mm. Circular economy is about using the materials that we have as efficiently as possible. So the planet simply can't sustain the, the growth and development that we're going through at the moment. Um, so how do we make sure we can live within our planet's means? Mm. So one day we're going to go and there'll be no marble left. Mm, um, yeah. There'll be no more trees left if, you know, if we don't think about this responsibly. The answer to both questions is reuse, yeah. which is why it's getting so much attention at the moment and, and rightfully so. Um, and in order to benchmark buildings, at the moment, we've no way of doing that with circular economy. Um, a UKGBC group is looking at that at the moment. It's a little bit more complicated. It's a bit more nuanced. When it comes to carbon, we do have a way of measuring it. We can carry out whole life carbon assessments. And no, there is no scale yet for the hotel industry, but Letty last year released a new um, scope of measurement mm. and a new method of reporting. So each building will get a rating if you uh, measure and complete a template um, uh, that they have provided freely online. 
you'll then get a letter rating for an office, a residential building, and I think maybe a school. Okay. You won't yet get a letter rating for hotels because they need more data mm. from hotels so that they can start to benchmark and begin to understand, well, what would good look like? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has been supported by the RBA. This was mm-hmm. sort of a, a multidisciplinary uh, piece of work mm-hmm. that Letty led. Um, and I think it's going to be a bit of a game changer. So you're going to start hearing about a rate of buildings mm. in terms of embodied carbon yeah. and what's a rate for an office is different for residential is different for hotels mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. so what we're trying to do is encourage our hotel clients to just complete these assessments mm-hmm. complete them as comprehensively as possible and report them mm. and be open and honest about them and hotel sustainability is a really really tricky one actually i don't really i don't think i know the answer to that one yet i'll come no, back to you when i do have Hamish. a really good <laughs> we do have an answer in terms of um adding data though with the yeah. materials passports that i think i've read about from you, from you, you. Have, can you yeah. tell us a bit more about so what the idea passports, is the idea about that is reuse encouraging reuse so reuse is the big sticking point we <clears> it's it's not easy but it's doable to reuse um existing buildings that are in mm-hmm. situ, existing structures that are in situ. If I came in and I was asked to refurb a, a hotel lobby, for example, I could say, oh, well, well, we'll keep those fire doors over there, we'll keep that and we'll keep that and maybe we'll refresh this, this and this. Mm. If I, and everyone's fine with that. Mm. If I come in and I say, take out those rugs, take out those chairs, take out that cladding, take out those fire doors. Mm. And then I go to a different project and say, here's all my stuff from my other one. Mm. Everyone will go, oh, no, no, thank you. Oh, mm. that, that'd be, mm. we couldn't do that. They might take your rugs, they might take your chairs, but they don't want to take your fire doors because mm. that's risk. Mm. But the fire door was perfectly fine if it was left alone in, mm. in its original position. Mm. So the idea of a material passport is a little bit like how my passport contains data about me. The material passport will contain data about the material. So if I came to you and said, I have a fire door from this manufacturer, it was installed in this year, it had this much of a warranty, it needed to have its seals replaced in this year, that was done, blah, blah, blah. Think of it like a service uh, history for a car. Mm. Um, Now, you might be more comfortable with reusing Mm -hmm. it. So that's a good step. But also, we're hoping that manufacturer take-back schemes will become a little more enhanced. So at the moment, um, most of the manufacturer take-back schemes um, exist to take back and recycle. So they'll take back your um, unwanted items and they'll put it into the recycling process and they'll use some of that recycled content into their new. But ultimately, they're always trying to sell new. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to encourage is refurbishment. Mm. So maybe if I know who the manufacturer of that fire door is, Mm. I could go back to them and say, hello, I have one of your such and such doors. It had a 15-year warranty. It's been 10 years. Mm. I'd like to reuse it here. Please could you um, take it back, check its seals, check its glass and could I have another 10 year warranty on it? Yeah. You know, now we're getting into the world of reuse. So this is this is the world we want to get into. And the reason the material passports piece came about was I had read about it a lot and thought it was a brilliant idea, the idea that you have this data attached to things. But I didn't actually know what it looked like. You know, is it a PDF? Mm. Is it a chip? You know, what is, <laughs> what is the passport? What am I looking for? Um, and it came up on a project that we were doing with the Grosvenor Estate. So this was an architectural project. And uh, they said, you know, could we be doing anything better in terms of sustainability? They already had a brilliant sustainability framework in place. It was already going to be a very sustainable project mm. by uh, today's standards. Um, but they were eager to know if there was anything else that mm-hmm. they could do. So as a design team, um, we put our heads together and we said, well, we think that if, you know, as part of this uh, development, we're going to have to take down some of the buildings because they just weren't 
reusable mm -hmm. in their current format. But if we try to reuse all of the materials contained within them, that will be a very sustainable development. Mm -hmm. And it's never been done before. We don't know if we can do it, but we think it's an interesting idea. Uh, so they set up a, a separate innovation uh, project and all the partners then match the funding. And we had a five month period where we could do a uh, different piece of research. Uh, so it was led by Arup and their uh, materials research department. And they looked at material flows in and around cities. Mm. So this secondhand marketplace that doesn't exist yet, what could it look like? What exists elsewhere? And they worked with um, an EU funded project called Circuit to develop that. Um, Elliot Wood looked at the structural engineers on the project and they had looked at how could we understand the structure of these buildings? How could we understand the reused potential of the structure within the buildings if we take it out? Mm -hmm. So if I lift a beam out, can I reuse it? Mm -hmm. What needs to be done? Mm -hmm. And these buildings were in occupation, so we couldn't just go in and start demolishing to have a look and yeah. see what was up there that's quite challenging yeah so yeah. They, they worked with um specialist surveyors to use really cool techniques like running electricity through the bit of steel that was exposed so then they could assess I don't know, the resistance it's, or something like yeah, that it was, yeah. it was very cool there was nobody time. with his finger on it at the other end but they did a whole piece on reed's potential and then head to architects, um, our research-based practice, and they uh, were brought on board to help with this idea of how do we specify for reuse. Mm. So, you know, thinking back to the earlier piece about, well, um, NIA is really important for clients and that sellable area. Uh, if we're trying to reuse parts of a wall, for example, mm. so the framing inside a wall, arguably it could be a zone of 30 mil or 50 mil or 70 mil um, so what flexibility do we want to give the contractor because if we allow for up to 70 mil then the contractor can pick you know depending on what's available in the marketplace can pick um, what they're going to reuse mm. so they looked at your typical passport partition said right well you know say normally you would need to allow 120 mm -hmm. mil uh, to maximize reuse maybe we need to allow 150 mil mm -hmm. and then where that comes in with the NIA conversation mm -hmm. is well, maybe the client isn't going to agree to that on the ground floor retail, which is their mm. premium space, but mm. maybe they'll agree to it upstairs mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because, but maybe not on the top floor, mm -hmm. which again is a premium space. Yeah. Um, so then our piece slotted in with the material passports. Oh, so I was getting lots of data from the surveys and our approach to material passporting is actually just for existing buildings. And mm. um, it can be used on new builds and it's being trialed on new builds, mm. but the research that was out there was largely focused on manufacturers giving you information that you stored somewhere. Mm. And what I needed to know was from my surveys, basically an inventory of materials contained mm. within my building. But given that it's a building, that's a lot of materials. Mm. So a way of sorting it, linking it into my BIM model if I wanted yeah. to, you mm. can't, everyone's like, oh, just put it all in your BIM model. That's what I was wondering, yeah. Well, see, so, um, and then maybe this is where me being an architect is actually really helpful. That's the the worst thing you want, nobody wants an overloaded BIM model mm. because they become really slow and clunky mm, okay, and yeah. heavy and they crash. Mm. And so you don't want to embed too much data. You mm. want them to be as lean as possible. Mm. So what we did was we set up an external database mm. and there's an Excel version and there's a cloud-based platform that you can, um, as a, sort of a, a more sophisticated mm. version that we're using, just sheer quantity of information. And it can import and export Excel files, mm. which can be imported and exported in and out of Revit. Mm. So in that way, information can flow from the model mm -hmm. into the database mm -hmm. and from the database into the model okay. mm. as and when yeah. you need it. Yeah, mm. rather than being lumped in with it. Yeah, Exactly. Mm. And then it lets the client, who won't have a Revit license yeah. or know how to use Revit, have this Excel 
formatted mm. database. Excellent. But then that is the usual input, CSV or XI, the usual mm. inputs for facilities management teams. Mm. So the idea would be that I've taken out a door of my building. Mm. I've gotten somebody to re-warranty it. I've put it back in. Mm. So I know that door came from here and it went there. Mm. That's all recorded mm. in my database. Mm. And then because this database is cloud-based, each record, so if you imagine when you open it up, it looks like an Excel spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. But if you have a different view, mm. each of each line in the database can be a record. Mm. And that is the passport. So it's a uh, filtered okay. view of the database. Okay. Mm. And it has a URL, yeah. which means you can generate a QR code. Mm. So you can print that out, stick it on the door. Yeah. So okay. when you walk around your building, if you need to maintain the door, if you're going to take that door out to sell to somebody else, mm -hmm. you can scan the QR mm -hmm. code with your phone. Mm -hmm. An iPhone will do that now. An Android mm -hmm. phone will do that yeah. now. Scan the QR code and it pops up live with the data oh, yeah. within the database. Do you see there being much resistance from other architecture firms to get on board with this mentality? No, everyone's been really, really That's good. Brilliant. I mean, we, so we've published it and we've said, look, it is not perfect. There are no. many issues. And, but you know, I think that's the reason why you're shouting the loudest and actually being heard is because you're very open and honest to say, we haven't got all the answers. But we're working Work in on progress. Them. Yeah. And, we're, and, we're, and we're passionate yeah. about working on them. And that, that yeah. really is the answer. And we're passionate about collaboration. And, yeah. you know, we, we are very pragmatic in the sense that we know we're not going to solve the world on our own. Mm. Um, and we're the best one in the world. Uh, I am not a database developer. So but you're learning. I'm learning. I'm learning. My mom actually works in uh, libraries. So okay. I was like, how do you yeah, yeah. catalog your books? Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, well, that would be a database sooner. Yeah. So I was like, okay. Yeah, what do I Google then? Yeah. <laughs> last year. I was like, so, and what would I Google to get that? <laughs> and so it was a learning curve. Yeah. Uh, family effort. Um, but it's, it's amazing, all of this research that goes on behind closed doors, really. But you're so open about it. Um, I do just want to highlight some of the projects you've worked on because they're not small scale sustainability, you know, projects. I mean, you know, the standard, for example, yeah. and the, the project in um, Central St. Martins. Maybe yeah. you can tell us a bit more about that because I know that's that's coming up. Yes, uh, I'd love to. Well, the standard, I mean, it's major sustainability accolade was the retention. You know, that building um, was earmarked for demolition by Camden themselves. They felt it was you know, not right, a negative contributor to the area. And we were, I think, a team of, uh, there was, uh, let me think. No, there were seven uh, teams put forward um, to buy the building. And we we're the only one to propose retention of the structure. Okay. Um, so, and part of, you know, being completely honest, part of the reason for that was um, the sheer logistics of trying to take down a building mm. at that site. The facade is inherently part of the structure. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Um, so trying to take that down was going, it was going to be a beast. Mm. Um, and honestly, the client really liked it. Mm -hmm. So uh, they said, um, you know, we, we'd like to work with it. Mm. Um, so I think now, you know, we did a retrospective embodied carbon assessment. Uh, which has shown the benefits of reuse. But what we're trying to do now in the Central St. Martins project is to use those uh, studies during the design process. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at different specifications, when we're looking at different massing opportunities, to be running those whole life carbon studies so that we're making these informed choices and the client is able to make these informed choices, like I mentioned before. Mm. Um, and for me, I think it's going to be really interesting. Um, fit out is an area that I'm really interested in. I think there's a lot of hidden waste in there. So we know at the moment that 
embodied carbon lives in structure, lives in substructure. So everyone's trying to retain as much as possible, which is brilliant. So once we sort of get into that world of that's new normal, the large carbon hotspots are going to be different locations. Mm. And I suspect in something like a hotel, mm. it's going to be in the fit out mm. and in the services. Mm. Um, so what we're really keen to start to do now is to measure um, the interiors mm. and then to have much more frank conversations with the clients about life expectancies mm. of the materials. Mm. Um, because at the moment it's assumed, you know, wall finishes can last 20 or 30 years. Mm. Uh, floor finishes 10 years mm. just because they can doesn't mean they're going to be kept for that yep. long so what is that impact of you know a full um, reception refit or ground floor refit mm. what is the impact of that um, restaurant or bar mm. refit and being able to measure that and articulate that and share that with others in the industry mm. I think is going to be hugely important so that's one of our focus is and something we're going to be looking at really intently on the Central St. Martin's project. Yeah. So Rachel, in each and every episode of Design Pod, as you know, we have a quick fire round. We're as unprepared as you are, you'd be pleased to know. Okay, good. <laughs> My first question really is, what's the, um, if you had to choose one material that you just think is an absolute game changer um, from a sustainability perspective, um, what would it be? Um, Anything natural. Okay. So we treasure our natural materials a lot more. If I said to you, oh, I have to rip out a bathroom and it's tiles, you'll go, eh. If I say to you, I have to rip out a bathroom and it's marble, you'll go, oh no. You know, we, we really treasure them. So if people are specifying natural materials, think about how they can be reused. And I think people are also less likely to pull them out. So I mm. think it's a game changer. If you put those in, high chance they'll be kept. Brilliant. Right. Okay, so my question is completely different. Okay. You mentioned right at the beginning that your passions were, I think, architecture and food. Yes. And so I'm going to ask you whether it's hummus or guacamole. Guac. Oh. <laughs> Without a shadow of a doubt. Is that because you don't like hummus? Is that, with the tortilla, so. is that with tortilla chips or is that on sourdough? Tortilla chips. Ooh. Okay. okay, I can justify this. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> so hummus is one of these foods that I don't think I like, right? Okay. So if you offer me hummus, I'll go, oh, no, thank you. I'm okay, I'm okay. And then if I eat it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's nice. Mm -hmm. But then I go, I'm like, no, I don't no, want to do it. <laughs> so it's always going to be guac for me. And pet peeve, when you have guac on sourdough, if I'm allowed to eat it with my fingers, that's okay. Okay. But you know when you go for brunch yeah. and they give you like guac, sourdough okay. and a poached egg and, then and you, you choose knife, knife and fork, fork. and you can't cut work. through the sourdough. sourdough. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. First world problems. Yeah, but I have to say, from a sustainability <laughs> point of view, it's probably the chickpea over the avocado, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. I did. I mean, I didn't get into that, but avocado is <laughs> taking it to a next level. Yeah, I mean, obviously, sustainability is what I do at work, and yeah, yeah. you know, when someone sees me with a plastic water bottle, they're like, oh, "Rachel, I'm from you." you. Um, and I'm like, "Well, excuse me, you know, we all we are all human." Yeah, yeah. Um, but in terms of you know my own personal life, I've been trying to think about sustainability of food. Mm. I mean, you watch things like Seaspiracy, and you're like, "Oh my God, what am I going to eat?" Mm. Um, totally. It seems like everything is unsustainable. Mm. But what I've been trying to do, a little like architecture, is try and eat locally as possible. Mm. So when I go shopping, try and find things that are produced in the UK mm -hmm. um, or not too far afield. Try to avoid plastic where possible. It's, it's so always. difficult though, because I mean, my building doesn't recycle. 
Can you believe that? Can you believe and that? I, I, I questioned it when I moved in, and, and they they said, well, you know, it, which just adds to the cost, so oh, you hello. can do your own. So I tried to do it where I can, but actually it becomes very difficult. And then yeah. you hear things like, it all goes into landfill anyway. It's, it's very, as yeah, a yeah, consumer, yeah. Very and, and I think a lot of the messaging gets put onto the consumer, and of course we should do what we need to do, yeah. but actually you look at the big companies out there that are just, you know, Mm. offloading so much and it's just it's it's terrifying really mm. there's no solution mm. to that no i know <clears throat> i don't want to say don't try though no exactly no, yeah trying, yeah but i think we also need to but i think it goes back to being conscious because it's not just about um it's not just about the environment actually it's about bettering ourselves and having a cleaner lifestyle i was anyway. going to say it's about it's about forming habits isn't yeah. it because my children will automatically recycle because we recycle yeah. so that's embedded in them now that's why i find it so difficult yeah. that Ours don't. Obviously, I, I do everything I can to mm. off-site, but it just takes so much longer. It's just, it's very difficult. Yeah. My next question for you is you've done a lot of projects in London, Orms, um, with uh, the Standard and the, the new um, Central St. Martins project, which is going to be fabulous. Where else in the world, if you had to pick a city, would you like to um, design a project? Oh, can I go back? I want to go back to New York. Yeah, I, was, I, I thought you were going to go back to New York. New York. I absolutely loved it. So, uh, yeah, Orms, New York. Watch this place. Yeah. I've and where would you... Abs- for years, they've, they've said no. And where, would you, <laughs> and where would you like to avoid? Ooh, that seems unkind, but... Uh, <laughs> The Middle East kind of makes me squirm. Yeah. Um, I had a layover in Doha, and, and you know, this is maybe really unfair. I'm forming judgments without having truly been. So I've never been mm. to Dubai. I've only had a layover in Doha, and I was there for 24 hours. Um, but I just, it just seemed like incredibly wasteful. From what mm. I've heard, it, it can be incredibly wasteful. Um, well, there's and- so much emphasis on on the image, and actually. Mm. It's kind of like, look over here, look over here, don't look over here. <laughs> yeah, and you know, prior to coming back to London, I had actually looked at working in Dubai, um, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it's sort of been told anecdotally, oh, well, you know, there'll be some projects that as a female, you'll have to, um, you know, you'll stay in the office and, and others will, will go to mm. the meetings, the side meetings for you. And I just I feel very oh, uncomfortable with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, the health and safety numbers, mm. and you know, you hear these stories of uh, well, the people, labor, labor. the immigrant labor, and mm, their passports mm. are taken from them, and the, the working conditions that yeah, they yeah. are forced to work in. Yeah. Um, now, others may rightfully say, well, maybe you should go out there and try and do something about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Instead yeah. of just sitting here in you your comfy little seat in, in London, <laughs> yeah, you can't do everything. But like, we haven't so. even talked. To, we haven't even approached that topic yet. But you know, equality in architecture has, mm-hmm. has been something that's you know it's, it's been an issue in, in the past yeah. is it still an issue now for, for women to uphold um, leadership uh, positions and, and what do you think the solution is going to be moving forward I would like to think it's less of an issue for women and mm. leadership positions I think we now need to focus our attentions on people's backgrounds their their class their race and making sure it's accessible to everyone um, you know yes I'm female but I'm also white and I also came from a middle-class family um, I had every opportunity in Ireland. It was very doable for me to become an architect. Mm. Um, and I'm incredibly fortunate that I've come out without significant debt um, because it's affordable. Um, and I know that that's an absolute privilege. I think, you know, the whole women in leadership issue. Well, firstly, my year at architecture school was the first time they'd ever had more women than men. 
uh, studying. Mm -hmm. So in our year of 60, we were 40 female and 20 male. So I think that trend is there and making sure that there's a route into those leadership positions. I honestly think that this flexible working world that we live in now is going to make it more doable. You know, I don't have children, but some of my friends do. And it seems to be more manageable than maybe what our... Um, our other colleagues who are a bit older than us sure. have yeah. to sure. do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and no doubt it's going to be a challenge to, as always, juggle family life and work life. Mm. Um, but I would like to think that we're well on our way there. Mm. Um, so now we actually need to focus our attentions back to the primary schools. And that's why schemes like Open Cities Architecture and Schools Initiative, uh, which ORMS have been part of for a number of years now, are so brilliant. And I'd love to see more of that. So that's going into schools where um, kids maybe don't have exposure to the likes of the professions mm. and showing them maybe what, what life as an architect could be like. We do sketches with them, we take them to a building, we do models mm. with them um, and they enter a little competition. So if we can do more of that and, you know, let's not forget that we need to turn around and, and put out that helping hand and help yeah, others yeah. into the profession. Yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. Rachel, we're out of time. No. But you are seriously <laughs> changing the game in architecture Thank and you. interior it's been design. fascinating. I feel very well informed now. Totally. <laughs> thank you. Thank well, you so much for coming in. Yeah, it was my really pleasure. Um, thank you so much for having me and hope thank to chat you. again with you soon. Yeah, 100%. lovely. Thank you. <laughs> Mind blown. Oh, completely. Wasn't she amazing? How incredible is Rachel? She has got so much information. She just like it just Absolutely reels off time. She just knows it. Yeah. But I, what I loved about her, she also uh, is very clear that it's an emerging, it's an emerging um, conversation that we're all having, and they don't have all the answers. But they're they're absolutely on it, trying to you know get to a point where they are doing the very best they can for a building and for the environment and for for the world. Really. Yeah, and, and it's it's tough for us to. I mean, we have to be so responsible when we put forward a topic like this mm. because it is it is so um, current. And also mm. there is so much greenwashing happening already in the media as well. And mm. mm. um, I think Rachel was the perfect guest to discuss she sustainability. Wasn't she great? No, she worked, she's worked, obviously has worked on some great buildings and still, you know, working on some. And I love it because the building, the, the Church Central St. Martin's building that she's working on is somewhere I did my education. I was yeah. at Central. So I love that thing back that she's actually working on doing. And it's been sitting empty for a long time. I go past it from time to time and think, what's happening there? Yeah. So yeah. now I know. Totally. I mean, yeah. the fact that she's working on all, the, all those studios working on these big projects and they're able to inject all of this research in mm. it's not just the fact of just it's not just the case of just doing research for the sake of it it's actually mm. going into projects and and architects look up to those projects and hopefully yeah. they will start um ad adhering or, or sort of addressing the same sort of mindset absolutely you could see the way they implement it is is true is truly properly done i mean from talking about how they retrospectively looked at the standard and then consciously moving into the next building and saying right we're not going to it's obviously not going to be retrospective this time this time we're going to implement what we saw from that you know Know, that that information into the process as we do this building mm. um, and i think if, i think clients really appreciate that yeah. if it's come from in, informed research mm. it's only going to better the, the, the project absolutely the the and if if like uh if buildings end up having ratings for their their sustainability yeah, yeah. either from a new build or from a refurb that people are really going to take notice of then you know that can only be a plus plus for a client to mm. have on their um their records and really yeah. using value so not just giving the client the cost but actually the environmental cost mm. as well i just think mm. that that changes everything yeah and also the sense that you know if you are using repurposed either repurposed or pro 
products that can be repurposed. The client knows that down the line, if they are going to refurb, that there's going to be some cost back for those products that they can resell on. Mm. So I think that's very, because often, you know, you strip everything out and you see all these stuff just going into skips and, you know, you think not only is that bad for the for the um, climate, but also it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's money wasted. Mm. Mm. I love it. We've got Rachel on a round table next yeah. week for Hotel Designs and um, it's all going to be around luxury. Yeah. So on the surface, perhaps it's going to, you know, seem like it's all around aesthetics, but yeah. then Rachel's going to come in hopefully and really sort of, you know, blow people out of the, out of the water in regards to sustainability and the yeah. fact that we need to really be conscious about you know that in all aspects of the market yeah because yeah. so, i would say that's the most difficult it's from so my difficult. perspective that's the most difficult um juxtaposition to have is luxury and sustainability yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. but they can work hand they in can hand. and actually you know when you're working in a luxury market using luxury materials actually they're they are luxury often because they're rarefied mm. and that means because there's a finite amount of them so mm. we should be really taking care of those materials yeah. that there is it will run out it, once it's gone it's gone mm. and if, if designers are, are keeping sustainability in their, their dna and really approach or just mm. just it's not sustainability i would say conscious if they're conscious um when they get the brief and really understand all the different areas in which they can go down all the different mm. avenues in order to get to that one result of mm. the project then it's going to be more sustainable mm. in the mm. long run anyway. Mm. Mm. So our next episode mm -hmm. is with Tim Griffin, mm -hmm. who is just such a wonderful personality. Mm -hmm. And it's all going to be on development in design, Excellent. looking at his personal development mm. as well as development of his new company, Wellbrook Hospitality. Fantastic. That sounds fascinating.